This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 10. This week, Royal Canadian Air Force Major Dave Chown explains the massive cost, time, and maintenance effort required to keep frontline high-performance jet aircraft flying. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and I just had an epiphany. I don't think I ever explain the voice comms you're hearing on that opening bumper, so I'll have to start doing that. This week, what you heard was some comms from an American F-16 that got shot down by some AAA over Serbia in 1999. Anyway, we have a great show in store for you today. We have not only our first non-Navy guest, but our first non-U.S. guest, Dave Chown, friend of mine, is going to come on the show here in a little bit and talk about the behind-the-scenes maintenance effort that is required, as I said in the little intro bumper there, the cost per flight hour, the maintenance man hours, the effort that is required to keep these aircraft flying. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. But before we do, just some quick announcements and then listener questions. All right, now this is being recorded in March of 2018, and it's been a rough week for military aviation. First, we had an F-18F Super Hornet crash and claimed the lives of both the pilot and the Wizzo in Key West. And then the next day, we had a helicopter crash in western Iraq claiming the lives of all seven service members. You know, military aviators and service members, they understand the risk of what we do. You just always hope that it doesn't happen to you. But it doesn't take away from the tragedy knowing that they understood and accepted those risks. But nevertheless, just a, uh, again, a rough week. And our hearts, our thoughts and prayers go out to the family members and the fellow service members of those units. Also this past week, we had our first Facebook Live event. If you missed it, not to worry. We are posting it on YouTube. And we will look to hold similar events in the future. All you need to do is log on, enter a comment or a question in the notes there. And I can answer them real time for you. In fact, in the future, I'd like to bring back some former guests of the show and have them help answer the question so that you get more than one perspective on your question. All right. Speaking of questions and answers, we've got some from you. And I've only got one phone call this week. It's from Charlie in New York. And Charlie, you're going to have to wait another episode because I have not finished doing the research I need to answer your question. But it was a good one, and we'll try to do that. The rest are emails, and the first is from Ryan from Plainfield, Illinois. Ryan says, my question is a follow-up to the ejection seats episode. You talked about how landing from an ejection was like jumping from a second-story building. Why is this? You see skydivers land gracefully all the time, but I imagine they are using complex, large parachutes. Is the kind used with ejection seats different? Uh, Yes, it is, Ryan. Now, they're both about the same size, according to my research, about 250 square feet, But a skydiver parachute is really more of a flying wing that they manage. And in fact, if they don't manage it well, they can stall the parachute wing and collapse it. And because it's so maneuverable, they are also able to do, as you said, a graceful landing. Now, a parachute 
in an ejection seat is different. It's round, it has some minimal steerability, but it's designed more as a safety lowering device because what happens if the air crew happens to be incapacitated? So it just basically falls straight down and you can steer it a little bit to try to get away from power lines or rocks or buildings. And then a little bit, you know, at the end, you can steer it into the wind. But for the most part, it is just a no kidding aerodynamic device that falls and the other one's more of an aerodynamic device that flies. So I hope that helps answer your question. And that was a good one. Thanks, Ryan. All right, next was from Brennan, who I believe left a voice message some time ago, but he had other questions. He says, I heard a talk by Dale Snort Snodgrass, F-14 pilot legend, who talked about, quote, breaking the jet during BFM flights based on the motto, train like you fight, and that one day your life could be on the line and you should feel comfortable pushing the envelope or performance of the jet. What are your thoughts? Did you ever overstress or over-G a jet in BFM training? Uh, yes, I did. Brennan, I once pulled up to 8.4 Gs. Wasn't proud of that because it did require some maintenance effort to make sure the overstress was not damaging for the aircraft. But the F-18 is limited to 7.5, and I inadvertently went to 8.4 Gs. So I don't know Snort very well, although many of you have brought him up in, for example, the Facebook Live segment and here as well now. And I respect, from what I've understood, what he has done, but I respectfully disagree here. I think it is important to understand the limits of your aircraft and fly right up to that limit because if you fly over the limit, and granted you can do it once or twice and get away with it, but if you fly past the limit, you run the risk of either departing the aircraft and possibly crashing and dying or breaking the aircraft and causing maintenance personnel to do just that much more work on it. Or as you'll learn here from Dave Chown in a little bit in today's episode interview, you are really running the life out of that aircraft so much faster. Now, again, if it's life or death in combat, that's one thing, because if you don't do it, maybe the aircraft gets shot down and its life is over anyway, and maybe yours too. But in training, I disagree. I think you should go right up to the edge. You got to know where that limit is. You fly right up to it, and you save combat for a, another day when it actually happens. All right, his second question is, Around study technique tips, Brennan asks, I've read the NATOPS, which is Naval Aviation Training and Operations Procedures Standardization. It's a manual for the Hornet for fun, he says. And I'm curious how you and your fellow fighter pilots absorbed and focused on studying the document. It is a lot to take in and curious what, curious what gouge you have and what sections you focused on learning best. What pieces of info did you put to memory besides emergency checklists? When you study the NATOPS doc, do you get access to the simulator to augment your learning? Is the NATOPS eval test open book? All right, so I know that's a lot for everyone else. Now, what Brennan's talking about there is the big blue sleeping pill, as we affectionately call it, which is really the F-18 Bible. It has different sections in there for normal procedures, special procedures, emergency procedures, different systems that you might want to know about, not in super depth like the engineer or the maintainers might need to know, but basics on engines, hydraulics, oil, flight controls, everything basically that you need to know about the aircraft. And so what we do, Brennan, is we study certain segments or sections of it more than the others. So the normal procedures, you read that once, maybe twice when you're new, and then you just kind of have those down. Uh, the emergency procedures you review constantly, and then the carrier procedures you review before you go out to the ship for the first time, and then the special procedures you review again, and if it's, you're going somewhere where there'll be hot weather or cold weather, you need to know how to handle those. 
Now, yes, we can use the simulator when it's open, and sometimes we have dedicated simulator events. Once a year, we go and get a check to make sure that we know our procedures. But the way we study it is it's really up to each pilot. It's up to your professionalism to get into that book once in a while and make sure you understand everything that's in there. Because just like, you know, I presume a doctor or a lawyer, you know, a lawyer probably studies new law when it comes out or the law as it exists now so they don't forget. And doctors check each other's research and learn new things about the human body, I assume. It's the same for us. We get in there, we review it. Sometimes when we're on deployment and we're, say, transiting from San Diego over to Hawaii and we have a few days and maybe we're not flying, we will have enterprising young junior officers that will create ways for us to have little quizzes or jeopardy in the ready room and we will challenge each other and you know they'll throw out some gidunk which is just our word for candy and various things just to just to keep it interesting and make people study and of course if someone gets something wrong you rib them a little bit and I don't know if the safety officer or the commanding officer are listening for who's getting it wrong and making mental notes but usually everybody gets it right so again it's just our professionalism you get in there and you look it over and you just you make sure you know it because you are required to. And Brennan's last question is, can you share your tips on flying the ball during carrier landings? I hope you do an entire episode on case one and three recoveries, the burble, and as well as some good stories like night in the barrel stuff. Uh, yep, Brennan, you're right on time. We are working on some carrier operations episodes. I'm hoping to do three of them and they should be coming out soon. All right, next question is from Zach. I don't know where Zach is from. He says, would you have been happy if you were selected to fly anything other than jets? For instance, helos or other fixed-wing aircraft. So this is a dangerous question, Zach, because I'm going to say no, and I'm going to take some ribbing from my friends who fly all those other aircraft. So here's the deal. People enter into the military hoping to fly one thing or the other. Not everybody wants to fly jets. Some of them do want to fly helicopters. But for me, I knew I wanted to fly jets. And so had I not gotten them, yes, I would have been disappointed, but I would have made the most out of it, just like the people do who fly other things that maybe they didn't want. And at some point, you come to grips with it, and you find happiness, and maybe you stick around, maybe you don't, but in my case, no, I would have been disappointed. All right, the next question is from Eric from Alabama. He says, I'm currently a senior midshipman at Auburn University, so I'm very excited to find out come October if I get picked for an aviation slot. And Eric, I'm going to interrupt your question right now and say, you have to write us all back and tell us if you do, please. All right, picking up. I'm working towards flying jets, and the podcast is an amazing insight and motivator for me. I shared your podcast with my battalion during an aviation brief I was assigned to present. They really enjoy the stories of the call sign episode, and my question is about the Legacy Hornet versus the Super Hornet. I've heard the Legacy Hornet is like driving a sports car. Is there a significant difference with feel, maneuverability, etc., for how the two jets fly compared to one another? Which did you prefer? Thanks. Eric, there was a difference. The Hornet was a little more snappy, a little more responsive than the Super Hornet. I always say it felt like when you carry drop tanks, you know, you can feel the drag and the extra weight. So a two-drop tank-equipped Hornet was a lot like flying the Super Hornet because one thing the fly-by-wire flight controls do is automatically limit the roll rate, so you just can't roll as fast when you're carrying drop tanks. So to me, the drag, the speed, the roll rate of a two-wet, as we call it, F-18 Hornet was a lot like a regular Super Hornet. But for the most part, you know, they were they were both pretty comparable. They're, they In the right hands, they are both very capable 
but my preference was the Hornet. All right, next question is from Rob from Ontario, who asks, the FA-18 is frequently introduced as an all-weather multi-role carrier aircraft. Can you expound as to what all-weather means? What sensors, systems, and instruments aircraft have to give them all-weather capabilities? And is there any relationship with night flying systems? Well, thanks for your question, Rob. You know, the all-weather designation was, it came about because back in the old days, and by that I mean Vietnam era and before, it was not uncommon for some of the older fighters to have to be vectored to an aircraft and then be able to see the aircraft in order to lock it up. They didn't have necessarily true weather radar and night-looking systems to allow them to fly in all weather. Now, these days we take it for granted, but back when systems were not as advanced, then it just meant that we had radar, we had forward-looking infrared, and we had other systems that allowed us to look through bad weather, look through the dark, and to be able to detect aircraft, lock them up, and shoot them down without ever seeing them with our eyeballs. But good question. All right, my next question is from Mark from Austin, Texas. Again, in multiple parts, he says, Do you think the Blue Angels will ever change their outfits and aircraft colors? They look a little fruity to me. I think it could be cooler if they had squadron colors and outfits. Sometimes change is a good thing. Well, Mark, I am hoping to have a future show on the Blue Angels. I happen to know the squadron commanding officer. I said hi to him after their show opener at El Centro couple weeks ago and didn't get a chance to ask him that but hoping to get him on the show and I'll be sure to tell him that you think he looks fruity and we can bring up your question then no I mean you're right change is sometimes good but tradition is also good so we'll see I'll let them answer that question all right next Mark asks what criteria or factors cause an aviator to change squadrons well Mark it is time frankly um, we don't like to keep the Navy doesn't and the Air Force aviators in one place for too long you just you start to get complacent a little bit. You need some change. Sometimes personalities need to come and go. So it is normal during career progression for about every two to three years in one squadron. After that, it's time to move on. And that's healthy both for the squadron and the individual. Now, sometimes, however, you might be reassigned if you had a problem. So, for example, in my very first squadron in VFA 86, we had a fellow junior officer friend of mine who did something that maybe he should not have done. And had to answer for what he had done and got in a little bit of trouble. And so instead of leaving him in that squadron, they actually moved him to a different squadron just to give him kind of a, a fresh start and a clean chance and have that squadron, you know, not look at him through certain filters, if you will. So sometimes it happens because of things that you do, but most of the time it's just part of your career progression. Mark's final question is, if you are not an aviator, is it appropriate to refer to someone by their call sign? Well, it's not inappropriate, Mark. I mean, I, I don't know of any friends of mine who say, oh, I can't believe so-and-so called me by my call sign. I mean, it's not that big a deal. We're just humans. I have a friend from Top Gun whose call sign was Monkey Butt, and he said his mom even called him that. So I don't think it's a big deal. I wouldn't stress about it. All right, well, that will do it for the question and answer segment of this episode. If you have a burning question for the show, stick around till the notes at the end to find out how to submit it, and we'll cover it in a future episode. All right, on to the interview. Now, before we get to Dave, just a couple quick caveats on some things we will talk about during the show. First is Op Impact, which is the Canadian version of the American Op Inherent Resolve. That is the Canadian Armed Forces support to the Global Coalition Against ISIS, also known as ISIL, that takes place in Iraq and Syria. 
And until recently, F-18s used to be involved in that, and now it's simply support aircraft and personnel. Another term you will hear us throw out is AAA. You might remember from our interview with Willie D that that refers to anti-aircraft artillery, but in this setting, it actually means the American Automobile Association, and you will understand after we use the term what we're getting at. All right, with that, let's roll the tapes with Dave Chown. Okay, today I am joined on the Fighter Pilot Podcast by my friend, and let's make sure I get this right, Dave. It's Major Dave Chucky Chown, Royal Canadian Air Force. That's correct. Okay, outstanding. Welcome to the show. Uh, Today we are talking about aircraft maintenance and behind the scenes, uh, what people don't see when they do see an airplane fly by. But before we do, give us a little background on yourself there, Dave. Where are you from? What have you done so far? And what are you doing now? So uh, Canadian Air Force, uh, I joined uh, almost 20 years ago now, believe it or not. I can't believe how fast time flies. Born and raised in uh, Montreal, Quebec. um, And the Air Force has been really good to me. I've traveled all over the world, including uh, here in the U.S., Okay, and what was your duty? What has it been and what is it now in the Royal Canadian Air Force? So I'm a aerospace engineering officer. In that role, I'm responsible for aircraft maintenance. Okay. You are now at the job that I was last at, the Fleet Readiness Center in San Diego, California. And what are your duties there? So I'm a liaison officer. The F-18 program has an office here in San Diego that we help each other sustain our fleets and keep our fleets viable as they get older. We all know that the F-18 is getting older, so uh, these jets, we have multiple countries that are together, including the U.S., Canada, and many other countries that are working to keep it flying. Okay, that's very true. So before we talk about maintenance and the behind the scenes, at least from most viewers' perspective, tell us a little bit about the Canadian military, specifically the Air Force, and anything else you think the listener might find interesting? Yeah, so the Canadian Air Force officially formed in 1924, so we're relatively young, and we're all over the world. We are a small force. We're only about 15,000 regular force members in the Air Force, 3,000 reserve-ish, and that makes up about a third of what we have in Canada, total Canadian military, which is about 68,000. Lots of aircraft that we fly, very dynamic in our operations. We recently just came back from Op Impact. We brought our jets back recently. And that would be for the American listeners, that's the equivalent of the U.S. Op Inherent Resolve. All right. And so what aircraft do you fly? So the Canadian Air Force flies the A and B model F-18s. I mean, F-18s go all the way up to G models now. So you can tell by the number that it's one of the older variants of the F-18. Yeah, we just had a whole episode on aircraft nomenclature, and we did talk about the A and the B being the first two models. So no Super Hornets? Any thought of getting some? No Super Hornets. At this point, our government has uh, an open competition started for a new fighter, and the Super Hornets, I believe, will eventually compete for that, but uh, they're not there yet. All right. And then just quickly, what other aircraft? I assume there's cargo and transport and helos and patrol. Absolutely. We follow the full gamut. We have a lot of similar airframes to your Navy or Air Force or Army. Some of the newest products we have are the Chinook, uh, which is a medium lift helicopter, and the Cyclone, which is a pretty neat helicopter that we're going to use for our supporting our Navy. But we also have the C-130Js and the C-17s, a lot of familiar ones to the U.S. side. For sure. Now, is it true? I thought I heard once, like, I was obviously in the Navy and flew off of Navy ships. In Canada, if there's a helicopter flying on a Navy ship, is it a Navy pilot or is it a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot? Uh, so, good question. Actually, the Canadian Air Force is only Air Force, so we do it a little differently than the, than the U.S. forces. Our Air Force flies, our Navy floats, and our Army runs on the land. So, uh, what we do is, in that case, our 
Air Force pilots would be attached to a ship and they would fly the helicopter. The asset would be attached to the CEO of the ship or the, or the uh, captain of the ship. So there's still the military rank and chain of command. It's just the person happens to be in a different branch. Absolutely. Okay. Different color uniform. And that's not too uncommon. I mean, in the Navy air wings, we will occasionally have a Marine squadron and they fall under the operational command of the carrier air wing commander. So, okay. Now, do you have any type of carrier type even just flat decks for helos or vertical aircraft? I mean, I know you don't have like a traditional aircraft carrier like the Carl Vinson. Yeah, correct. So no aircraft carriers. We do have some frigates that accept the helicopters, and usually it's it's just one. And to be honest, that's about all we have from a naval air force's perspective. Okay. But you guys are out there, like we talked about earlier, you know, you deploy overseas, you protect the homeland, you're part of the team, and you bring your forces, even if it's a little bit smaller, it's just the way it is, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And and what you, you just said, I just hung on one point there, and that's on the sovereignty piece. That's actually our number one objective, and, and it's kind of exciting because it's the 60th anniversary of NORAD. That stands for North American Defense, and Canada's very, very proud of our relationship with the U.S., supporting uh, sovereignty of the North. We cover the whole Northern Hemisphere, with the exception of a little bit of Alaska, whereas the U.S. cover all of the rest down in the in the southern parts of North America. So will F-18 stand alerts, like if the Russians send a bear or some other type of probing aircraft over, do you guys Absolutely. jump up and intercept them? Absolutely. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Also on episode eight, I said something about a CF-18. Is that what you guys call it, or do you just call it an F-18? We do. We call it a CF-18, or the official type designator is a CF-188. We tend to have three digits for our identifiers. Interesting. Okay. But is it mostly an F-18A like we would call here in the Navy? And you've spent, obviously, now some time with us here at the depot. Is it more or less the same airplane, or are there... Absolutely. Okay. There's yeah. it's, an, it's an F-18. Uh, you, you would call it an A+. plus. Okay. Or an A++. So it's yeah. got some upgraded avionics. It's the old skeleton, but new brains. Correct. Okay. The, the 1980s airframe sure. with a whole bunch of new stuff inside. Well, hence the uh, search for something new, I guess. Okay. Outstanding. Well, as we've alluded to already, Dave, you know... Folks go to an air show, let's say they watch the, what is it, you guys call them the uh, snowbirds in Canada. Uh, We have the Blue Angels and Thunderbirds. And they watch and marvel at the airplane and the sound and the pilots, and then the pilots come out afterwards and shake hands and sign autographs and kiss babies and all that, which is good. But you being, as what we would call a maintenance officer, you see a whole different side of that world that I don't think most people see. And that is what it takes to make an airplane fly. Now, it's not just, you know, you and I can go jump in our car and basically turn the key and go, but it's not that way in an airplane. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what it takes to keep these aircraft flying. Now, first off, you can't, like I said, you can't just hop in an F-18 and go, right? There's There's got to be someone who makes the airplane ready. Talk about that process a little bit, if you will, like the plane captains and, and the various maintenance that are required just to make an airplane operate normally. Yeah, absolutely. We break it down into two main sort of subsections. We have what we call servicing and what we have called snags. Uh, servicing is what you're really talking about in our world, and that's that's the idea behind before a jet gets flown, there have to be certain checks that are done before the pilot gets into the aircraft, make sure the jet is ready, all the covers are off, the jet is tip-top shape. And then once that's done, and once, once it's signed off ready by the maintenance crew, that's when the pilot would come over and take control of the aircraft by signing the aircraft out. Okay, so... Again, it needs more than just hop in and go. There's someone who makes sure the covers are off, like you said, because you protect the intakes. Those engines are very susceptible to FOD. We've talked about that before. That's the foreign object debris that causes damage. And, of course, you have covers on the exhaust as well. But there's also various fluids that need to be serviced. 
Absolutely. There's lots and lots of uh, top-ups that they have to do. That's all part of the pre-flight check, but we also have a number of other checks. On the servicing side, there's usually what we call the pre-flight or the uh, before-flight check, the B check, um, and then there's also an A check and after-flight check, and those are the two big servicing responsibilities, and that's what maintenance will do on top of the pilot telling us if anything broke during the flight. That's what maintenance will do to make sure that the, uh, the jets, we know what we need to fix before the next flight. Okay. And how long does something like that take? Uh, usually about an hour. Uh, each check is roughly an hour. It depends on uh, the conditions, uh, but that's what we usually allot for it. So if an aircraft is flying and it lands at 9 in the morning, it could theoretically be ready again, maybe not quite at 10 because the pilot has to come out a little before then, but you know, about an hour roughly turnaround to refuel it, check the fluids and everything. Sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, it's actually easier right after the aircraft is flown because things are warmed up and gotten the bugs out. It's when a jet sits for a little while that it's a little more difficult sometimes. Is that right? Absolutely. And we call that the hot turnarounds. Hot turns. Okay. Yeah, exactly. The hot turns are pretty popular because, as you said, the faster you keep it running, the, uh, the less likely you're going to come up with a snag that's going to keep it grounded. Okay. Now, in a Navy squadron that I'm familiar with, generally we will have 10 to 12 aircraft, about 15 pilots or 30 aircrew if it's a two-seat squadron. And the whole squadron will be about 200 personnel. Now, the U.S. Air Force does it a little differently. They will have a squadron that is an operational squadron. It may just be the pilots and the operations side, and then they'll have a maintenance squadron that is like the other side of the equation, but they work very closely together. Uh, which model does Canada follow? So Canada follows, for the most part, the Navy model. Okay. Um, we do have what we call eye-level intermediate maintenance, which is also done by its own maintenance squadron, and that's kind of similar to what I believe you're describing with the, the Air Force. However, the Air Force has taken over the first, what we call um, O-level responsibilities as oh, well, operational. So operational level, sure. So, yeah, we could probably get into that in a little bit, you know, the different levels of complexity that an aircraft requires for maintenance. So well, how big will a squadron be? Uh, how many aircraft and personnel in Canada? So almost exactly the same okay. as what you describe in the Navy. Yeah. Okay. So, and you were one of the officers in the department. Describe the maintenance department for me as far as like the number of people and the different types of jobs that they have. Yeah, happy to. So in, in a typical F-18 Canadian squadron, we would have a maintenance officer, which was myself as a rank of major. Uh, usually he has uh, two captains um, and, a, and several senior enlisted that support sort of the chain of command. And then following under those those two main branches, you get into um, the servicing snags organization, which are the guys that are really touching the jets and really doing the maintenance or the launch and recoveries. And then you also have what's called the um, production support organization, which is uh, all the little stuff that needs to get done, like uh, maintenance records. Uh, obviously, you need somebody that's very well-versed in keeping good, good maintenance records on the jets. We have all the little shops, the machine shops and the metal shops for anything that breaks the seat shop, and that would, would be what I would place in my production support organization. So a squadron of maybe 200 personnel, the majority of them are in the maintenance department, and everyone has a specialty, with some exceptions, right? So you're in a leadership position, so your specialty is people. Right. But you've got, as you just said, people who do the records because we always say by the book, and I assume it's the same for you guys. We have manuals and directives that tell us how to do various repairs. And when someone goes out to do something on the airplane, with few exceptions, they'll have something printed out or with them 
to show how to do it. So you have people doing the books. Then you have probably some training people, right? Because a new sailor in our case or soldier in yours perhaps shows up and needs to be trained on how to do things. And they would have gotten training formally elsewhere in their workups to be in a squadron. And then you, so you had, you said you have shops. So for example, the seat shop, we had an episode on ejection seats. So you're telling me there's a whole shop and, and that also implies a physical space. So there's a, a room in your, your guys's hangar where people work and there's a chain of command even within them, maybe what, half a dozen people. And their job is simply the ejection seat. Is that correct? Or the crew yeah, served items? Yeah, that's exactly correct. Depending on uh, the squadron, sometimes those shops are bigger than others. I wouldn't say, well, yeah, half a dozen is not too far off from the truth. It's really just a place for the seat techs to go. And that's also where they keep all of their supplies and their equipment. So uh, a lot of the work obviously is done on aircraft because we are a, an operational level squadron. We don't want to take the seats out every time we need to do some work on the seats. But that uh, that space is definitely there in most hangars. Okay. So we'll have the same thing for engines, flight controls. Gosh, what else am I missing? We have a whole ordnance department, right? So the people who do the weapons and some of the explosive devices on various parts of the aircraft that we need. Yeah. Hydraulics, if I didn't already say that. What am I missing? Is that... Uh, the machine, airframes. Me, the airframes, okay. yeah, exactly. So that's the folks who work on the actual skeletons yeah. of the aircraft, if you will. Oh, and then uh, what we would call our ATs, so our technicians who work on radar, radar warning receivers, stuff like that. Is that you guys call it the same? Yeah, we're close. We're, if you want, I'll go through real quick what yeah, Canada please. has. Canada, so Canada has four main core trades. Uh, the first one is the aviation technicians, and you kind of describe that. The aviation technicians would look at sort of hydraulics and landing gear and flight controls. Second one would be the avi- avionics technicians. Again, it sounds like you're ATs, and those are the guys that are working on uh, radars, co- communications, uh, that sort of stuff. But moving right along, after avionics, we've got the uh, what we call ACS, aircraft structures technicians. And they are uh, they do a lot. They do pretty much all metals, all composites. They do painting. They do sewing. They work on our seats. Uh, they have a lot of different sub skills that they need to perform their job. And then finally, of course, you can't have a fighter if you don't have weapons. And so the last trade that we have in Canada is the air weapons tech. And those guys are um, have some very special skill sets because there's higher risk at handling the weapons. They have to understand what they're doing and be very safe. For sure. Yeah, yeah. especially in hazardous environments. Uh, again, I know you don't have a carrier, but for us, the electromagnetic environment on a carrier presents all kinds of hazards, but even on regular tarmacs, you can have different signals going around that can be a problem mm. this day and age with these complicated weapons. Okay, uh, did I micronap through? Did you talk about the aircraft flight equipment folks as well? There's a whole shop where the pilots get dressed. We had a previous episode with Vern on flight gear, and we talked to some of the folks there in the shop. So all the people take care of our flight gear. Did I? Did you cover that? Yeah. So, oh. well, actually, again, the, we call I called them the ACS techs. They actually have that sub subspecialty now in Canada. Okay. We used to have our own trade, and and actually, quite recently, like within the last three years, we've brought them into the ACS trade as well because there's some common skill sets with regards to the sewing and the, and that sort of thing. Okay. But those are the folks who take care of our flight equipment and whatnot. Right. All right. Outstanding. So, if I want to go jump in an airplane and fly for an hour, let's say. We have at least roughly an hour's worth of preparation that has to take place ahead of time and an hour afterwards. But then we have different, like you said, you you called it service and snag. I think that might be specific to Canada, but we get the idea. So there's some things that need to be done just regardless, just to keep the aircraft up, just like fueling and changing the oil in an automobile. And then there's other things that come up. So if I come back and I say, hey, I had a discrepancy with this system, then there's a way to report that and for maintenance to 
repair it. So can you touch on that process a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So what you just described to me is what we call corrective and preventive maintenance. And the corrective is usually comes from the pilot. Pilot would come down and say, hey, this just didn't feel well. Can you guys check it out? And we raise the proper paperwork to check on that. The uh, preventive side is really where you see a lot of the background effort that we're talking about because there's a lot of preventative stuff, as you know, multi-million dollar jet, expensive piece of equipment, lots of stuff that we do to make sure that it's safe so that we ultimately get our pilots up to do a proper mission and then safely back down to the ground. Okay. So when it's all said and done, to fly an aircraft for an hour takes about, if you were to average it out, about how many man hours, and we use the term man, but you know, it's men and women. But roughly, is there a metric, do we know roughly what it takes to operate an aircraft and and the amount of time it takes to prepare it and then do some of the reactive stuff afterwards? Yeah, absolutely, we we do, we track those. That's one of the many metrics that would be tracked. And generally we see fluctuating, at least on our jets, of roughly 10 to 20 hours per flying hour. Wow, okay, so if I had, one person supporting me to go fly an aircraft for one hour, he or she might have to work a 10-hour day or a 20-hour day by himself. And I, obviously, this is an exaggeration, but you get the idea. Just, just to go out and fly at one hour. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in reality, what you have is 20 people who have to work for an hour to go do that. So when you see a team like the Blue Angels with their six aircraft and Snowbirds, about six or how? I don't I forget. I'm uh, nine. Nine? Okay, yeah. sorry. I'm not too familiar. But now you start doing the public math, which I won't try to do when we're recording because I've been bitten by that before. But that's a lot of effort. Yeah, absolutely. And all the people see is, oh, wow, look, there goes an airplane. It's loud and it's fast and it's cool. And here comes the pilot shake my hand. But in fact, there are hundreds of hours being spent for those nine aircraft, in the case of the Snowbirds, to go put on that performance. Absolutely. Wow. And of course, you have to take into account the fact, the age of the jets. So as the jets get older, they tend to break more. So you add a little bit more corrective maintenance and, uh, than we're used to. And you find more things on some of the preventive maintenance too. So in the end, it's not atypical for an aircraft, whether it's a jet or any other aircraft. As you get older, you're starting to spend more maintenance man hours per flying hour. Sure. And I think anyone who owns an older automobile can appreciate the parallel there because things start to wear out, you know, catalytic converters or shocks and struts that a new car are not, are not a problem for the first 100,000 miles or so. Yep. All right. Well, time is, as we all know, not our greatest resource, or at least I should say not our only resource. There's also quite a bit of cost here, right? So we have a sunk cost, arguably, in the military of the people. I mean, they get paid the same. Now, it does change a little bit if we deploy. I'm assuming it's roughly the same in Canada. You can get a little extra pay if you go somewhere hazardous and you get flight pay or sea pay or whatnot. Uh, but that you're going to make that payment pretty much regardless. But then what are some of the other things that cost us money when we fly? There's, what, consumables and replaceables? Are those terms you're... Yeah, we use those terms as well, absolutely. Uh, consumables are a big deal because you go through a lot of them. They, uh, you know, as, as the term would suggest... Uh, you're talking about everything from the gloves that the technicians are wearing when they're checking fluids and oils and stuff to just, you know, screws and bolts and nuts. You can go through those a lot. I think but the bigger cost really is parts to the bigger parts. That's a huge cost. And as the jets are getting older, they're getting more and more expensive because, of course, they're harder to find. But not just the older jets, even the newer jets, because they are so technologically advanced, can be more expensive to fly, I believe. Absolutely. Because of the technology that's involved and Frankly, they're more affected by various weird 
reactions to, again, electromagnetic interference and other things. Um, so, but a consumable, in your example, now you said nuts and bolts. I mean, we don't want just those to fall out, but some things just what, wear out, right? So mm -hmm. like you said, gloves, other parts of the aircraft, tires, I presume. Yep. Uh, okay. And then, so if it's not a consumable, then it's, what else do we call it? So, it, it, well... Just parts, basically. I, I, yeah, I, I just classified as parts. Okay. Now, there's different types of parts. Sure. Um, you know, and depending on whether you're talking structure or mechanical systems, there's. I mean, you can go anywhere with with the parts, but they they are the ones that cost a lot of money. There's other things, obviously, that are costing to the jet, and we'll probably talk about that soon. Sure. But. So systems on the aircraft, let's say a hydraulic actuator or a generator, right? They don't last forever, mm. and when they break. Now we can, I'm assuming, turn those in, and someone can refurbish them. Just like when you get an alternator on for your car, it's probably been refurbished. But if it breaks, we have a system. I mean, it's not like you, as the maintenance officer, are whipping out your credit card. But we use, correct me if I'm wrong, money as a way to track how much things are costing for a squadron, so that we can kind of gauge how well they're doing their maintenance. So if you go down on your base to the local parts store, if you will, you can trade in a bad generator and get a new one. And there's sort some sort of record keeping. Keeps track of that, right? Yeah, there is. We, to be honest, you know, I, I was fortunate, at least in my previous job, that was organized by a different organization. So we had to make sure that we had our parts and we would regularly have jets that were sitting down waiting to be fixed because we were waiting for, we would call them not, not operationally ready for supply reasons. We're waiting for parts to arrive through the supply system. Um, but there's a whole other background organization to that, at least within Canada and I'm sure in the U.S. as well. Those are the guys that are watching our material levels, making sure that we have enough generators on the shelves ready to go so that when those operational level squadrons need the parts to go onto the airplanes, they're actually there. So again, someone who's not in the spotlight, not getting all the glory, but doing a critical job making sure that the frontline units are properly equipped with all the parts they need. Okay, so we use dollars to keep track of that. We have fuel, we have the people. We talked about there a bit of a sunk cost. Uh, but when you add it all up, like we talked about with the man hours, gosh, 20 man hours per flight hour, roughly, I'm guessing it's pretty expensive to fly these aircraft as well. Absolutely, absolutely. The um, the running number roughly for the F-18 from what uh, from what I know is, uh, is you know, we, we use the round number of 10000 So, so $10,000 per flight hour. Absolutely. Okay, and that's for a regular Hornet. Now, in the American Navy, uh, the number I recall is anywhere between 12 and upwards of 16,000. And as, as you mentioned earlier, part of that is because they're getting older. So there's there's more hidden corrosion inside, there's more elongated holes and cracks and just wear and tear, right? It's no different than 80-year-old body, human body, doesn't look like a 20-year-old human body. Uh, so it gets more expensive to keep the 80-year-old going. But again, the number can vary even among squadrons. So I think we just kind of average it out based on some of those consumables and replaceables that you were talking about. Yep. Is that the most expensive aircraft there is that's out there? I mean, I guess for you in Canada, it is, because that's pretty much your only fighter, right? Yeah, that's I, I can't say for sure, but I'd say that's probably one of the more expensive in Canada, absolutely. But no, the new the newer airplanes are probably much more expensive than that. Right, and we, we touched on that a little bit earlier based on the complexity. So yeah, I've got some figures here. It looks like the F-35, the Lightning II that's newly out, about $28,000 per flight hour. And the F-22, they're advertising $33,500, which wow. is probably right around an average income in America. So that's crazy. Mm. So let's put this in perspective. You and I, before we started the tapes, jumped on AAA and found out that it's roughly to own an average sedan in America is a little over $9,000 a year 
to drive roughly 15,000 miles. So if you assume, for the sake of comparison, that you're driving 60 miles per hour, uh, what did we decide? That's about 30, 36. Yeah, $36 yeah. per hour. Correct. Yep. So to fly an F-18 A through D is quite a bit more than that. Yeah, like I think we calculated to 200 and uh, almost 300 times more expensive to operate the F-18. Than an, than an automobile. And Correct. that, again, is including fuel and different costs. Wow. All right. Well, that definitely puts it in perspective, especially there again. If you see a half-hour show with the Blue Angels, that's six aircraft. Okay, I'll take a stab at this public math, right? So that'd be, um, okay, maybe I won't. So 10000 would be 5000 but times six. So about $30,000 per show. And that's probably different because they have to keep the aircraft looking real good and, you know, they have the smoke systems and some various other things. Absolutely. Plus, they have to run from spot to spot. And they don't just have, by the way, folks, just the six aircraft. They have probably about double or maybe triple that because they have to move them to different shows and, and take care of all the maintenance that you talked about. That's great. Isn't there a world-famous uh, Hercules that supports them? I forgot what it's called. Big oh, Al- Fat Albert. Fat Albert. There you go. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Do you know the cost of per flight over a C-130? No idea. Okay, well, maybe we'll look that up and put it in the show notes afterwards just for fun. But, again, part of the reason it's expensive is the age. Part of it is the complexity. But a lot of it, too, I have to think, has to do with being safe. So I, th- I think we don't normally put a cost associated with safety, but wouldn't you say a lot of what we do is overkill? I mean, we will replace parts before they fail, to your earlier point, and they might have quite a bit of life left in them. But what's the risk of just waiting until things fail? I mean, it's kind of an obvious question. but Oh, absolutely. We don't want that to happen. Um, there are certain parts in the aircraft that are designed to fail, and that's a that, you know that's intended for us, for maintenance, to know, okay, obviously uh, we need to fix it, but those are not what we call not airworthiness critical areas. Anything airworthiness we take extremely serious, and we could probably have an entire podcast alone on the airworthiness programs of Canada. It's extremely extensive, lots and lots of... Uh, inspections um, and uh, requirements to prove that we're doing everything by the book. Got it. Okay. So we talked briefly earlier about the different levels of maintenance. So a 200-person squadron can do, I guess what, by definition, O-level maintenance? That's correct. We, okay. we, uh, I'm, I'm actually using Navy terms here. Okay. Uh, Canadian terms, we would call it first, second, and third. And okay. you hear well, that, that a lot. Seems in, a little more logical. <laughs> yeah, you hear that a lot in, in uh, some of the other uh, foreign countries too. And actually in the civvy world as well, in the, sorry, the civilian world. However, uh, yeah, on the Navy terms, you call it O-level, operational level. So the, the guys that are actually launching recovering jets. Um, then you call it I-level, which is sort of the first level background. They're usually co-located close to or with the jets so that you can get a really fast turnaround on parts that get removed. So a lot of avionics components go I-level because it's a box that gets pulled out, gets sent to this other squadron. They maintain it, they fix it, and they bring it back to okay. serviceability. And I stands for intermediate. Correct, intermediate. Right. Sorry. And some of the people that worked for you on one tour a couple of years later might move over to the other I-level facility and do some of those repairs, right? Absolutely. Okay, so they move back and forth. All right, sorry to interrupt. No worries. And and then the final last uh, last piece is the is the D-level, the depot-level maintenance, and that's the really heavy stuff. That's like the big overhauls. Right, which is where you are now, which is where I left and where we met. And so the aircraft that go through there are literally pulled apart almost to the single nuts and bolts. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, depending in Canada, we actually most of our D level is done by contractors. It's a little bit different than the US because you still have quite a lot of organic capability where it's civil servants that are or mainly civil servants with some military. Mm-hmm. Right. So that same scenario where a, a person was in your squadron 
uh, and left to go to the I-level facility, if you will, could then on a subsequent tour come to the depot or that D-level and also perform some of the same maintenance in some cases, but also much deeper. And like you said, we do have, gosh, what is it, about 4,000 people at the depot there, and vast majority of them are civilians. So folks who left the military in some capacity or another, but know how to bend metal, as we call it, and work on things. And boy, they really do take those aircraft all the way down. I remember about a year before I retired, I flew one aircraft. I don't remember the designation on it anymore, but it was an F-18 single-seater, and it had not flown in almost, or over, I should say, eight years. Wow. I mean, that's a long time for an airplane to not fly. But I think what it had was a center barrel replacement. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's like, you know, we talk about humans get new hips. But I think a center barrel replacement is like getting a new spine. Absolutely. I mean, that's literally ripping the middle out of this thing and putting a new one in. So this aircraft had received a new spine. It had received a high flight hour inspection. And as the name implies, it just means it's getting towards the end of its life on hours. And then it also received, I think it was a uh, PMI, right? That's planned maintenance interval. Exactly. And so that just is, what, every four to eight years, depending on if it goes to the ship or not. And so that's like a checkup, right? So aircraft come to the depot a lot like for reasons that patients go to see a doctor. Sometimes it's just a checkup. Sometimes it's because you're getting older. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes it's because you've been, you're maybe not older, but like a football player, you've just been used a little too roughly. Absolutely. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen seen several of those. Okay. All right, Chucky. Well, let me uh, take a peek at my notes here. I think we've covered almost everything. I, I probably have tried too hard to make the case that there's a lot that happens behind the scenes to keep these aircraft flying that I think most people don't see. And certainly Hollywood glosses right over because it's not very romantic or uh, <laughs> glamorous, but it's absolutely critical job, I would say. Absolutely. And, and not only that, uh, you know, I should definitely throw a shout out to all of the, you call them artisans, we call them technicians, same idea, but the skill set of these people is uh, phenomenal. It takes a very special person to be able to uh, maintain these jets. I mean, they are complicated, even myself with a full up engineering degree. Uh, sometimes I'm spinning my head trying to figure out what they're talking about. And uh, the technicians know it inside and out because they do it every day and they love what they do. Yeah. When an F-18 comes to them, again, it could come every four or eight years, but a lot of the aircraft we're seeing now, how old are they and how many flight hours are on them? Uh, so speaking on, from a Canadian perspective, we bought our jets in the 80s. So I mean, what are we talking? We're talking 30 plus yeah. years, mm-hmm. 30 plus years now. And uh, most of them from a flight hour perspective are in and around seven, 7,000 to 8,000 hours. So they're getting up there. Um, the uh, maybe something that I don't know if we want to go into or not is we actually rate the life of the aircraft by fatigue life. Fatigue life expenditure index is what we call it on the F-18. And that's just a, a measure of how old the, the jet really is. And, and Canada's uh, number right now is we're about 75% through the life of the, the F-18. And that's just based on that fatigue? That's based wow. on fatigue usage. Okay. Um, so if you have two different squadrons, one sends their airplanes up to Top Gun, because we just had a previous episode about that, and they know the rigorous syllabus they have. Or maybe, let's say, even the Blue Angels, which they do a lot of high-performance maneuvering. And Squadron B, let's say, is mostly just flying across the country like an airliner. Well, then the fatigue life on B is going to be much lower than on A, is what you're saying. Absolutely. So even though time is the same, the Squadron A's jets may drop dead after so many years, and Squadron B's might be able to go far beyond that. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and you would see uh, actually a, a very big difference. Um, you would probably see the Top Gun jets die in five years, and you'd probably see these long-haul jets die 
15 to 20 easily. Right. And yeah. just to make the point of the relativity of those, not the actual numbers. No, exactly. Um, it's funny, though. I had an email uh, recently about the F-16. I think I had a picture in front of it on one of my social media things. And they asked if it was the F-16N. And I said, no, those went away in the 90s. I, I don't know if you're familiar at all. Top Gun ended up getting some F-16s, and they were specifically built for them, I guess. And they thought, this is great. We're going to have these forever. And they're great adversaries in training. But what no one planned on was that they flew them so hard and so aggressively that even though they were young, again, I kind of think of pro football players. I mean, these guys retire at 25, 30 years old, but they're just worn out. You know, their knees and joints and ankles and everything. It was the same thing for the F-16Ns. They just, not literally, but pulled the wings off, as we'd like to say. And mm -hmm. So sounds like the same thing for the F-18. I mean, the Squadron B that's just flying long haul, as you called it, they're not really doing their mission. So we are required to get out and bend these things around yeah and 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 just to make a point on that that's what we that's another job that maintenance does the maintenance uh at least in canada are the guys that are controlling which jets are, are picked for each mission and we take that very seriously for that reason we try to keep the fatigue lives of each of the aircraft comparable so that we're not overusing one jet and under utilizing another jet how do we know that is it anecdotal uh, no, we have uh, full data that we get usually from strain gauges on the F-18. Some of the newer jets, uh, actually, they don't even have strain gauges. They use some parametric uh, equations. What, but what is a strain gauge? A strain gauge measures the amount of displacement in a certain area of the structure. So they're very small. They measure very small mov uh, movements in the structure. But we actually record that data, and that data gets sent to uh, an, an agency that actually digests the information and sends back a number and tells us that you have 0 0.30 flea, uh, which tells me that I'm basically 30% through the life of the aircraft. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's technological marvel right there and obviously folks with your engineering background are involved in that so mm. uh wow really cool all right well what else um i know we had talked about what we were going to cover and i think we made the point that certainly a lot goes into flying an aircraft when all you see is the hour of loud noise and fast flybys and whatnot but anything else we didn't cover no, I, th I think we did a pretty good job of covering okay. everything. Yeah. All right, Jackie. Well, before we let you go, we have a little tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast to ask people to explain their call signs. I didn't even know you guys had call signs in Canada, but it sounds like you do. And tell us, if you would, uh, a little bit about yours and how you got it and what it means. Yeah, we definitely have call signs in Canada. We have some pretty good good ones, actually. But, um, yeah, uh, mine's not too glorious, to be honest. Uh, I... Uh, I got my call sign because I have a physical uh, resemblance to Chucky the doll in the American horror horror <laughs> movies. Um, so uh, so that's pretty pretty basic. Wow, that's not nice at all. Well, people can make their own assessment of that. I forgot to tell you before we rolled the tape, and I'll uh, just tell you now. I'll be asking, if you will, please, for some sort of hero shot of you to include. I had a listener some time ago say, hey, you know, it would be great to put a face with a name, so if you could include a, a picture. So we'll ask for one from you. and. Folks can make their own determination on that. And there we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what's the future hold for you? You said you've been serving for 20 years on behalf of Canadians and your allies to the south. Thank you for your service. Uh, what's the future hold? You're here in beautiful San Diego. I am here in beautiful San Diego. This has been a, a lovely time, really great uh, experience for me. Loved working with the Navy and uh, learning all sorts of uh, great stuff more about the F-18. Uh, this summer, I, I move again. Uh, that's the way of the military. I've been here for three years, so I'm heading back towards Canada. Don't know exactly where I'm going yet. Again, part of the military career. We just say yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and, and uh, move back. But I do know it's back to Canada, and it should be uh, another rewarding step in, my, in the next step of my career. I hope so. Are you too senior at this point to go back to a squadron? Uh, no, I am... Uh, 
I can go to an eye level squadron. Okay. So I, I hope to one day get back to an eye level squadron because that's uh, where you can still be really close to the jets and make a really big difference on the uh, fighter force. Okay. So you have no aspiration to move on to something else. You're happy serving and family likes it and just going to keep playing the game as we call it? Absolutely. The military has been so good to me and uh, given us so many opportunities that we're happy to uh, happy to continue the military lifestyle. Well, I can't imagine you're complaining too much about the winters down here. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Compared to what you must be used to in the great white north. So, Yep. All right, Dave. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. And I want to wish you the best as you move back to Canada this summer. And unless you got any parting shots, I think we can wrap this up and get out of here. That's great. No, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. You're quite welcome. All right. See ya. Bye. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dave Chown. I know I learned something, as I normally do from all my guests. And let me just explain a few more things that we talked about. First, you know, in the same sentence, we would talk about F-18 costs and then the snowbirds. And I just want to point out that the Canadian snowbirds fly the CT-114 Tudor and not the F-18 like the Blue Angels do. So, you know, we might have got our wires a little bit crossed there, but we were just trying to make the point of when you have multiple aircraft. I'm sure the Tudor is quite a bit cheaper to fly than the F-18. Also, the C-130, I found out, is about $14,000 per flight hour as well, so pretty comparable to an F-18. And I also looked up and found out that $35,000 is pretty close, actually, according to a 2014 census for the average American income for a single person. Apparently, married filing jointly is about $118,000. And then one more thing, you know, going back and listening to our interview, I realized we, we made the case over and over for aging aircraft being expensive to fly and operate because they are aging. But then we turned around in the same breath and said, oh, but these new technological marvels like the F-35 and the F-22 are expensive because of the technology. And, you know, the, the point is they're, they're both correct. I mean, these airplanes are just expensive from day one and they just get more expensive. And so God only knows in 30 years, like the F-18 now, how much an F-35 will cost to maintain because it will have all this technology and all the age by then. So stay tuned for that, I guess. All right, I want to make you aware that Dave did obtain permission from his chain of command back in Canada to participate in this interview. Uh, nevertheless, the views expressed in this presentation are mine and Dave's personal views alone and do not necessarily represent the position of the U.S. Department of Defense or its components or the Canadian Armed Forces or its branches. I want to thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. If you have a question for the show, you can... Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or you can message us on Facebook or leave a voice message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com and you can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Spotify, and iTunes. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave a rating or review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. Well, that will do it for this episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. My children are on spring break next week, and we also have Easter coming up. So we're going to take a little pause from our normal programming, but we will see you right back here on April 11th. In the meantime, you take it easy. See ya.
Oh, wait, one more thing. That friend of mine who got in a little bit of trouble and had to switch squadrons, yeah, he ended up doing pretty well and went on to command a squadron of F-18s before retiring. So, yeah, 